I have a few um, messages to deliver before we start the session. Um, just to remind you that the session is, is being recorded and will be uh, available afterwards as a recording that you can download after the session. Um, if you have any questions as we proceed, please do post them in the chat box and um, we will hopefully have time to put them to the panelists. I have uh, been led to believe that you're a chatty bunch, so please do, please do live up to that expectation. If you are not members of the Professional Practice Alliance, the PPA, please do join our LinkedIn group and also um, you're able to follow us on Twitter as well. Um, and uh, Daniela has now just posted the um, uh, access to the LinkedIn group and the Twitter in the chat if you need to see that. Um, and before I forget, our next event, um, because I, I probably won't remember to say this right at the end, our next event is on the 7th of July at this time and is to discuss personal risk management for partners, um, which I hope you'll all equally find useful. So I would um, like to open by introducing you to our panelists. Um, I first um, came across neurodiversity um, only quite recently, to be fair, um, after ACAS published some guidance um, in 2019. And as a result, I um, chaired a seminar with um, our first panelist here, Daniel Ahern, who, um, if, if he doesn't know anything about it, there's nothing worth knowing about neurodiversity. Daniel is um, a founder of Adjust, um, which he founded in 2016. And um, essentially he provides, starts the conversation for employers in the workplace and provides training and consultancy to um, allow employers to help navigate um, neurodiversity and get the best out of people in their workplace. Um, Caroline Ramsey, um, I met only recently as a result of um, an article that I co-authored with one of my fantastic colleagues here, Wanu, um, in relation to uh, navigating diversity, uh, neurodiversity in the workplace in leadership in law firms. And um, Caroline is a, a partner in Scottish law firm or the Scottish um, branch of law firm TLT and, an ex and is an expert in EU and international trade law. Mm -hmm. And we also have Rob Millard, um, Rob is a founder of, as, as many of you will know, the Cambridge Strategy Group um, and is an expert in, in providing consultancy on strategy to professional practice firms, um, in particular law firms, whether big or small, um, in the UK and internationally as well. And Rob has also authored a paper on neurodiversity, harnessing neurodiversity in leadership, um, so is um, entirely well placed to participate in the debate this morning. Um, in the first instance, I'd like to go to Daniel first. Daniel, please do introduce yourself a little more. But I, I'm, I had a question about, is it neurodiverse or neurodivergence? What's the terminology we should be, be using here? Um, I, I can use them interchangeably. And I think it's a good way to start because when we talk about neurodiversity, the way I talk about it is it's the exception, uh, acceptance, celebration and value that we all think differently. So... I think in a way we can respect people that have different ways of describing things, I, I would say. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you a bit about myself. Um, so my name my name's Daniel and um, I got into what I do completely by accident. When I was younger, I wanted to be a social worker and I spoke to a social worker and she said, do some volunteering. And the first, the first bit of volunteering I ever did um, in the year 2000 was with an autistic boy 
And um, I never became a social worker. I just got so interested in autism and people thought differently that my career took me in that direction. Uh, I went to work for the National Autistic Society's employment um, team, helping autistic people into work. And then a big part of that role for me was helping you, the employer, become more inclusive. So sometimes I'd be working with individuals and they, you know, they'd get an interview for, for a job and um, I'd be working with the autistic person saying, when you go for an interview, you'll be asked, tell me about yourself. The employer doesn't actually want to know everything about yourself. They might want to know three key skills and experiences. And then one day an autistic person said to me, well, why don't they ask the questions like that then? And I thought that's a really good idea. Uh, and then I spent a lot more time with employers. And I think that was really where a lot of my perspective changed, where I was like, actually, we're not trying to change people. People can develop. That's true. I'm trying to change you, the employer. I'm trying to get you to change your strategies and uh, your, your inclusive strategies, your diversity strategies and the way you do things. So that led me to set up Adjust um, five years ago. And at Adjust, we've worked with people from the from Mercedes to the Met Office, um, people like Clifford Chance and, and lots of different other law firms and EY and places like that. And I honestly think um, that that sums up neurodiversity for me so wonderfully. Throughout my career, I've worked with Battersea Dogs Home, <laughs> connected to neurodiversity, I've worked with Man United, you know, and I've worked with Tesco. And, and I think that just sums up neurodiversity so wonderfully that not everybody I've ever supported or every firm I've ever worked with is from one, one place. You know, I think sometimes the media have a representation of autism and neurodiversity that, that might be quite narrow. But my experience, you know, I've worked with makeup artists as well. It has been so broad and that's something I've really enjoyed doing. Um, so at Adjust, we, we start the neurodiversity conversation in the workplace and I'll start by defining neurodiversity from how we do it adjust. And, um, you know, actually, I think one of the things I really love about neurodiversity is you speak to lots of different organizations, they might define it slightly differently. But like I said, I think neurodiversity, the, the way we define it at adjust is we say that neurodiversity is the concept that we recognize value and celebrate that we all think differently. And the term was first coined by someone called Judy Singer. And I got her, I got her book here. So Judy Singer first coined that term in, 1998 and she compared it to like biodiversity she said within the human species we need people that think differently and I don't think we would have survived as a human species if we hadn't had people that thought differently so she was saying in terms of like ecosystems you know we've got different weather systems we've got trees we all need the bees um so all those all those things in an ecosystem make it work and um, that's what she was saying the human species is like that we need all those different ways of thinking and actually take it a little bit further and just get you to think about a cactus. You might be surprised to be hearing about cactus this morning. But I often say a cactus in the desert is in exactly the right environment. It gets the right amount of sun, the right amount of rain. It's a happy cactus. Its flowers bloom. If you move that cactus to my back garden in London, it would never get enough sun. It might have the last few days, but not usually. Too much rain and it wouldn't be able to flourish and it wouldn't be able to, to bloom. But we would never say that cactus was defective. We would never say there's something wrong with the cactus. We would just understand that the environment wasn't suited to it to reach its potential. And we might think it needs to go into a greenhouse, but we would never say there's something wrong with it. And I think the neurodiversity movement is about recognizing and celebrating these differences that we have within the human species and not coming at it from a deficit model. Yes, there are challenges that exist in, in the workplace and in the world for neurodiverse individuals, but we need to start talking about it from a more positive way and I think the neurodiversity umbrella in the workplace, that's really how the, the sort of conversations evolved and neurodiversity is an umbrella term now I've seen in the workplace for lots of different neurotypes or skills profiles, including things like 
autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, um, and amongst amongst others. So that's how I would define neurodiversity. Um, and actually, we'd say that about 15% of your workforce could be neurodiverse. Um, but at the moment, the CIPD did a study which showed at the moment only one in 10 HR professionals are doing anything about neurodiversity, which is really why um, we are just focused on starting that conversation because we need to get that number higher, higher than one uh, and, and get it get it up and get it get it raised. But um, I think it's really important for the workplaces. I think it gives you a competitive advantage. Uh, I know Rob's going to talk about that a bit more. But if you've got people that think differently, you're going to have a competitive advantage. If you're selling services, you need to understand who you're selling your services to. You need to understand your workforce. It can give you an increased skill set. I've seen something across this last year. I've probably trained more people virtually in this last year than, than ever before. And a lot of the sessions that I run, parents come along as well. Parents for children, neurodiverse children. Um, and I, I think that's really good for employee engagement. And you also see places like GCHQ, it's not a secret, it's on their socials and on the website, actively embrace the fact that they um, um, recruit dyslexic people, autistic people for some of the for them, some of the ways they think. So it's good for positive employer branding. And GCHQ say they wouldn't be the organisation they are without neurodiversity. So that, that's a brief introduction from me. And I don't want to talk too much because we've got a lot of people on the panel and a lot of questions to be asked, I'm sure. Thank you, Daniel. Um, I am going to ask you one more question before I move to um, one of our other panellists. And that is very briefly, a just uh, specialises in um, the four yes. neurodiverse um, areas, autism, uh, which I understand is a spectrum dis yes. um, condition. And um, you can't say, oh, I, I know an autistic person and assume you know everything about autism, no. because equally an autistic person is very different from the next autistic person. And um, uh, you mentioned ADHD, dyspraxia, um, would you, uh, and dyslexia, sorry, would you just very briefly in a nutshell give some characteristics of what the um, key spikes in those neurodiverse people might bring to the table? No, no, I like that question because it gives the opportunity to be positive because I'm sure a lot of people come in a session and think you're going to hear about dyslexia, you're just going to hear about people that might have literacy difficulties. But actually a lot of dyslexic people that I've worked with and have met have incredible verbal abilities, incredible problem solving skills, very good at connecting with people. I've actually turned this so far in my head now that if I meet someone that's really good verbally, one of my first thoughts is, I wonder if they've got dyslexia or if they've got ADHD. You know, I don't know what they're not good at. I just go from that strength-based um, approach. A lot of autistic people I've worked with have very good problem solving skills, very good eye for detail. But that eye for detail, I think then when the stereotype comes in, you might think, oh, all autistic people's eye for detail means they have to go and work in certain industries. But like I said, I worked with a makeup artist who was autistic, and that's how her eye for detail came out. I've worked with a lot of people with ADHD who I would describe as having um, very strong uh, concentration skills in certain areas. A lot of the time you might think ADHD is about not concentrating, but I've worked with a lot of people with ADHD that uh, if they were very absorbed in a topic, can really, really focus in on it. For instance, I know it's a bit left field, but I used to support a lot of paramedics with ADHD. Um, and I couldn't think of a better job for a lot of those people that I used to work with, because when the pressure's on and a situation's happening, for a lot of people with ADHD, that's when they can really become, um, you know, uh, really, really thought leaders in that area. And actually, a lot of people with ADHD are very decisive, maybe sometimes called impulsive. I don't like that kind of language. I like, we need our leaders to be decisive, don't we? 
we need people to take action. But so often that sort of flipped round as, oh, people are just doing it without thinking, but I actually like to turn that round. And I've worked with a lot of people, dyspraxia, who are very, very strong empathy skills, very, very creative. So hopefully that's a, a really positive outlet sort of to set the session today. And, and actually, I think people are often surprised when they come to a session I run where, where we're even talking about the positives. I think they just think it's going to be about what people can't do. Oh, thank you, Daniel. That's that's amazing and, and really has set the set a very positive attitude towards what we're discussing today. Um, I'd like I'd like to go to Rob now. Um, and Rob, please do introduce yourself. And um, my first question to you is, uh, aside from inclusion, why is diversity and neurodiversity so important uh, in leadership? Thank you, Emma, and, and uh, good morning to everybody on the call. This, this is such an important topic. Um, so I, I'm the founder and the director of the Cambridge Strategy Group, which is a, a sort of a structured network of some, some leading experts in law firm and professional service, service firm strategy. And that's really been my field for the past 20 years odd. Um, so within that context, I'm really interested in how decisions are get made, uh, especially in, you know, people talk about a VUCA world that we live in now, volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. And, and how does one make sense of what's going on when that's really difficult and then come to the best decisions for the firm? And it's been somewhat time now since I, I became aware of the importance of, um, of cognitive diversity, by which I mean different ways of thinking and neurodiversity I, I see as, as a facet of that. And what I'd like to do um, is just walk you through three things. I, I've got a few slides I'd like to put up in, in a second. Um, the first one is a paper that was published a couple of years back. Um, so this is a paper that was published on the, uh, the effects of cognitive diversity on strategic decision-making and strategic decision outcomes. And uh, in the first column is really just 12 different types of diversity. Um, one could put different ones in, I suppose. These ones are ones that I think have a particular impact on, on strategic decision-making. And uh, neurocognitive diversity, neurodiversity, they, they, there it is, uh, sort of two thirds of the way down. But they, it's really, one has to look at the, uh, a particular attribute that somebody has isn't just attributable to one kind of diversity. So if somebody is neurodiverse or neurodivergent or neuroatypical, whichever word you choose to use, uh, th that would be modified by the fact that that person may be male or female, what that person's occupation is, what that person's socioeconomic status is. Uh, and so you get all these modifiers which lead to their particular personality, if you like, their cognitive personality, their cognitive makeup. So that's really just to set the scene for this piece of research, which is looking at cognitive diversity in teams that are, are involved with complex decision making. And what they discovered is that it's really important for these teams to be able to disagree disagree vehemently and robustly with each other. And that's only possible where there's trust and a specific kind of trust. That trust is, is, is competence-based trust. In other words, the members of the team must trust the other members of the team to be competent in the context where they are. And if you get that, then this research discovered that you get a, a deep understanding of the issues and the solutions that are coming out. You get a deep commitment amongst the team and you, uh, you, get, you get a better quality of decision. What's important is to avoid relation uh, conflict, which is where people start getting uh, personally uh, conflictual with each other. And what uh, this research discovered is that where you get, have this competence-based trust in place, 
cognitive diversity does not lead to relational conflict. And what's more, even if there is relational conflict, if you have this competence-based trust, then it does not lead to any impact on the, on the outcomes. So people can, even if people in the group don't like each other, if the trust is there, then they can be robust about their, their conflict with, about the task in hand, and the, they can get the, uh, the level of understanding, commitment, and decision quality that is required for better solutions and strategy. So th this is uh, so important, I think, to the way we think about our decision-making teams. And the, uh, the Journal of Management is one of the top journals in the world. It's a triple peer-reviewed. So uh, this is a, a robust piece of research. Thank you, Rob. And to avoid that relationship conflict, there has to be presumably an open acceptance within the leadership team that everybody is different. Absolutely, absolutely. And one of the points I, I'll make in the conclusion is that this needs to be addressed before you put the team together. You can't yeah. just bang a team together and expect people to, to, to perform. And uh, diversity, um, another example, uh, it's not to do with neurodiversity, but gender diversity. There, there's some research, pretty solid research on banks in the UAE and also on banks in the Netherlands and Denmark, where they showed that having a female director on the board made absolutely no difference at all, or even one or two. There's a critical mass issue. You need, it needs to be safe. It goes, so the, 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 it needs to be safe for each type of diversity. So whether you're talking about having enough females to be able to um, have that critical mass or enough neurodiverse people, you, you need to look at, at, at making, it, uh, making it safe for those, for those people. It's interesting, um, as Daniel said, that the, it, the average should be 15% of a workforce is neurodiverse, and yet maybe just 1% would have disclosed that they were neurodiverse. So getting the critical mass um, and understanding that you're not on your own is, is part and parcel of what we're talking about today. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Emma. I mean, that UAE bank uh, study, the average uh, number of women on, on boards was 5.4% and many of the boards only had one. So um, critical mass is, is key, one of the keys. Thank you, thank you, Rob. Um, and this is the, the table that you've just put up, is, is that reproduced from your article? Yes, you... I, I meant to mention that. Uh, you, you can take screenshots if you like, of course, but you don't need to. Uh, they, this was all in a paper that uh, I believe has been shared with everybody on the, on the call. Thank you. Um, Caroline, um, last but my no means least. Um, Caroline, please do introduce yourself a little bit further. Um, my first question to you was, um, how has ADHD assisted you as a partner in a law firm? Sure, no problem. I mean, I should, I should say when I introduce myself to everyone that unlike uh, Daniel and Rob, I don't have any amazing qualifications or academics <laughs> in neurodiversity. I, I know about neurodiversity because I am neurodiverse. Um, so I'm a partner at TLT. Um, I head up the international trade and public procurement practices. Um, I've been a partner for about six years. I've kind of forgotten now. It's been <laughs> all blends into one. Um, and my story is that last summer, just about a year ago now, I was at the grand old age of 40 diagnosed with ADHD. And I was diagnosed because we ended up getting one of my sons diagnosed. I have, a, I have twin boys. And during homeschooling, we, we realized something was really not not right in terms of his concentration and, and his academic ability really great verbal reasoning skills but I mean we just couldn't keep him on task so 
we realized what the problem was. My husband's a teacher and has you know, quite a bit of experience in that area. So we got him diagnosed. And when I was filling in the medical questionnaires, you know, for him, I was just going through it and going, me, me, me. Oh my God, I've got ADHD. Um, so, and so I realized that I also had it and it is genetic. And there are other members of my family that have now been diagnosed as well. And, you know, that really triggered quite a process of like self-discovery um, because I went and I, had, I read into it, I wanted to understand it. And it, it wasn't what I thought it was. It, you know, ADHD is not a hyperactive little boy firing off walls and being aggressive and destructive. And my son is not like that. Um, it's very, it's, I've got the inattentive type and so has he. Um, he's got a slight element of hyperactivity. But it just isn't, it's not what people thought it was. It wasn't what I thought it was. Um, so that led me to start reading into all sorts of neurodiversity. Um, and I wanted to be, I decided I was going to step out and be open about it because when I looked back at what it's been like for me and like going through school and, and going into the legal profession and working up through the profession, I realized that, yeah, sure, there's been some negative bits of it, without a doubt. There's, there was some hard bits because I didn't know I had ADHD. So I didn't know why my brain wasn't working the same way as everyone else's. Um, but there were some real strengths there as well. And I realized that a lot of my strengths were probably as a result of ADHD. Um, but I also realized there was a stigma associated with it because um, people, including myself until recently, hadn't understood it. And I didn't want my children, because I'd chosen to get my son and also now my other twin diagnosed with it, you know, I chose to label them in order to get them the treatment and the support they needed, but that now means they're carrying that label. And so when it comes to them applying for a job, I don't want them to be interviewed by someone that doesn't understand what ADHD is or doesn't understand the benefits that it can bring because it, it really does. Um, so I decided to tell my firm. Um, I started with the managing partner and my, um, my, group, my group head. And, you know, with a view to, to, to mobilizing a really, you know, the firm was already very supportive of people with neurodiverse conditions for those that actually notified it. But as Daniel says, like, the statistics don't reflect the reality and people probably don't feel comfortable being open. And so I wanted to formalize a neurodiverse initiative and really increase the level of awareness in the firm, um, you know, because it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do for everyone that's neurodiverse, but also it's the right thing to do for the business because I started realizing there's all these strengths, which I had, but also, you know, I started looking into the strengths that people with dyslexia have, which Daniel's already talked about, people with autism, all the different types of neurodiversity. Law is really fixated on this idea of all rounders. And I don't believe there's such a thing as an all-rounder. And the moment everyone accepts there's no such thing as an all-rounder, we can stop beating people up for not being good at what we've told them they need to be good at. And we can let them set, set off and focus on the things they are good at. Um, doesn't mean you don't have to do the things you're not good at. You just need to work on it and get support on it. Um, and so, you know, if you can combine the strengths of all these different characteristics in one single team, the sky's the limit in terms of what business can achieve, not just a law firm. So, um, yeah, I... I told the firm I published an article within the firm to launch it the article went out in the lawyer um it was overwhelming really responsive like, but positive the response I got was amazing from people I didn't know across the profession um so it's definitely been a good thing to do um and you know I've been really pleased with with the response but I think there's probably a long way to go and I you know for, for anyone that's interested in how does it manifest in my career I like how Daniel refers to it as decisiveness I'll tell my husband that next time I come back with a random purchase it was a decisive purchase not an impulsive purchase 
Um, but, you know, I think that I, I probably am quite decisive when I take risks. Not excessive risks, they're always very well reasoned through, but I, do, I reason through them quickly. Um, when I'm under pressure, I work very quickly. Um, and hyper-focus when I'm, when I'm interested in something, I'm really passionate about it. I will keep working on it and, and I won't stop. Yesterday I did a 15-hour day on a, a transaction, but I'm so invested in this that it wasn't an effort to do it. It just, you know, I just did it. Um, and that's a real benefit. But the negatives are when I don't have a deadline looming, I procrastinate like you wouldn't believe. Um, it's procrastination central. Um, I've missed more flights than I would like to admit to. Um, you know, that's not great. And, you know, my inbox is a bit of a riot because I don't file any emails and things like that. So, you know, there, there's downsides in terms of the organisation, but, but it is what it is. So, you know, I think it's I think it's definitely positive. I don't think I would have achieved what I'd achieved without it. And I don't think, you know, when I told TLT that, you know, I had ADHD, I, I told them that what they didn't realise and what I didn't realise is that probably the reason they recruited me was because of these characteristics, because I had ADHD. It's just nobody knew about it, including me. Thank you. I mean, what I'm hearing from you in terms of your the positives that you recognise are down to your ADHD are all key traits that you would want in leadership. Um, decisiveness, um, ability, quick reasoning, really important in law firm leadership. I think they're definitely important. But I also believe that law firm leadership needs to be done with a, with a profile of all sorts of different people because whilst I can be decisive and hyper-focused, you know, I, I like to focus on the strategy. I try, I, I try really hard to be a good people manager, but, you know, I think it's, it's a known fact that people with ADHD don't have as much empathy. Um, so I'm, there's probably people out there that are a bet, better at people management than me. And, and that, you know, you can't have leadership that's only run by someone that's really decisive and really good at strategy because your business, particularly law, is built on people and people are not happy, then your business is going to suffer. So I do really believe that that's why we need to, encourage people to explore explore themselves sounds so cheesy but people need to be encouraged to look at themselves and go what kind of brain do I have and just because you don't have a diagnosis like formally from a psychiatrist doesn't mean that you don't have valuable strengths to bring to the table I don't really believe in neurotypical I believe every brain is like a fingerprint and just because you don't have a diagnosis of ADHD doesn't mean you might not have some characteristics of that combined with another condition so it's just about encouraging people to look at themselves go what am I good at? What am I not good at? Like life is going to be easier and your career is going to be more successful if you channel it in the, in, in the direction of your strengths. But we're all told that you have to be good at all of these things, like as if there's this specific mold that we're expected to fit into. And everyone's spending all their time pretending to be that all-rounder instead of focusing on their strengths and trying to mitigate their weaknesses. Mm. I mean, fr from an employment law perspective, I come at it from... Um, what are, the, what are the legal challenges where you have a, a member of your workforce who is neurodiverse and what should you think about? And from a, a, from a, a straight employment law perspective, neurodiverse may be a disability or is likely to be a disability for the purposes of the Equality Act. And I, I think that's a really unfortunate label to attach to it. And um, I'm sure Daniel would agree that, that labeling somebody with neurodiversity as disabled is um, is not the best way to approach it because disability will quite often have a negative connotation. But from, a, from an employment law perspective, employers um, where they recognise that an individual um, in their workforce, and when I say an individual, I mean um, any, anybody from um, employee, partner, um, LLP member, but also candidates who are being recruited, 
then they have obligations under the Equality Act um, to ensure a level playing field. So to consider making reasonable adjustments to not treat them less favorably um, because of their neurodiversity um, and guess avoiding the stigma of being neurodiverse is very much part and parcel of that. And then also not to um, treat them unfavorably for something arising out of their neurodiversity. So there's three aspects to the employer's obligations there. But I'd, li I'd like to just discuss um, uh, the first one and, and that would be making reasonable adjustments, um, but obviously in a, a non-legal speak terminology. And from my pers perspective, that means not making assumptions about what people might need in order to um, be their best in the workplace. Um, do you have any comments on that? Um, yeah, I think it's a really interesting point about disability. I don't, I don't view myself as disabled at all. Um, I mean, when I wrote my article, I said actually, I, I, some, some on good days, I think it's a bit of a superpower. Um, on, on bad days, it's not. Um, but I don't view myself as disabled. I've not declared it as a disability, and I, I won't. Um, it's a very personal decision, though, because you can't get those reasonable adjustments from your firm without not notifying it. But I think if everyone was a lot more open about it and there was an open culture and everyone was encouraged to speak about it, there would be less of a, like a need to have people disclose it as a disability. They could just say, well, this is, this is what I need. Obviously to get the legal protection, it needs to be notified as a disability because of the legislation. Um, so, I mean, I think reasonable adjustments are necessary, you know, for lots of people there are, and there are all sorts of different adjustments that can happen. And it's right not to assume what they need as well, because, you know, I've learned that what I thought I would need to help me through, new, you know, through ADHD is not actually what I, you know, it wasn't what I needed. And working from home, for example, is proven to be, you know, during lockdown, really useful for me. Boredom can kick in, which is not good for the procrastination, but there are no distractions. I didn't realize how much I talked to people in the office until I was locked up in a room like this by myself. So, you know, that I've learned that, that I need to be somewhere quiet in order to get work done. And it's about affording people those opportunities. And I think we'll need to be more flexible as employers if, if we're going to, to cater for that. So, so one thing for professional service firm leaders to consider then is most likely the environment in which to have a, an opportunity to have different environments available to leaders in order for them to um, perform well. Daniel, did you have any thoughts on this? And when I talk to employers, I often say, try not to think about it from the legal point of view, try to think about what can I do for my people to get them to achieve their potential. I used to have a really good manager when I was at the National Autistic Society who just got me doing a lot more talking and training rather than writing reports. Like I, and the disparity between my verbal ability and my written ability is, is, is really large, but that was a great manager. It was never called a reasonable adjustment or anything like that. It was just the manager that had the ability within that team to be like, a lot of the team don't like getting up and talking in front of people. I'll talk all day. And so then that's, that's what he got me doing more of. And actually that was really influential in my career because I don't write any reports now and um, this, this is what I do for a living. So I tried to get employers to think about it rather than a reasonable adjustment, rather try to think about it is what can you do to help this person reach their potential? If it's for an autistic person and it means they need their own car parking space in the morning, then that's great. I often talk about this in terms of, you know, I'm not suggesting you as a build, uh, as an organization build a car park. If you have a car park already, and someone who's autistic, a lot of autistic people struggle with uncertainty and change uh, and light routine, then maybe someone needs their own car parking space. Maybe someone needs to have a fixed desk. Maybe someone doesn't like to do meetings with the camera on. These are all 
what you might label as reasonable adjustments, but what I call about unlocking people's potential. So that's how I try to get to talk to employers about it, because I think sometimes they they get scared and want to run away when you start talking about the legal stuff because they just get really worried about it. So why wouldn't we want our, our people to work to their best? Um, and I find it really interesting when you're talking about leaders and environments because often leaders in environments, you might have your own office space, so you might not be distracted with everyone else. You might have access to PA or secretarial support. And if, like me, you struggle with organisation, now I've now got a PA, which has like changed my life because my organisation it was all right but then as I get busier it sort of falls off so all of these things you know they exist within leadership don't they so I think it's it's, it's really interesting and that they're having sorry Caroline sorry I was just going to say but they are privileges a lot of these things that are limited to leadership mm. but being a good leader means that you also support the neurodiversity <clears throat> of the rest of the workforce so you know that, that that is a bit of a conundrum for for any business is how to make those reasonable adjustments when you know it's a really junior employee I've suggested that in the past that for especially within a law firm where the is it graduate trainees don't usually get access to secretarial support or PAs that actually is a reasonable adjustment they did because when they were going to go and qualify then they would get access so I've made that recommendation in the past. I wonder if there's any architects who are listening in today who would actively con contemplate neurodiversity when they're planning office space um, from what you said Caroline being in a in your own space really aids your concentration yeah definitely I think it would I think that the layout of modern offices the provision of more breakout rooms because like I, I think gone are the days where partners get their own offices I certainly don't have one I'm it's all open plan um but there are lots of breakout rooms um and it's not just for someone like me that needs to concentrate for example I have colleagues who have dyslexia and we have software called I think it's Dragon Professional um which is like voice to text dictation it's it's fantastic but how are they supposed to use that and they open plan you know they can't keep going booking meeting rooms so there might need to be dedicated spaces allocated for for that so that people can comfortably use their dictation software for doing what other people might just type and you know into straight into an email um some people have noise cancelling headphones um so it's not just the software it's definitely the environment um also working hours um you know, as it with a person with ADHD, I'm naturally wired in the morning. I just wake up. I saw a meme the other day that says people with ADHD think more ideas before breakfast than normal people think an entire day. And it's totally true. Yeah. Um, so I like to start really, really early, but I will definitely hit a wall of tiredness towards the end of the day. So I'm not a night owl. And then I've just made my colleagues aware of that. So it's also about allowing them to tailor their days to fit their neurodiversity. Yeah. Well, so I was just going to say to about architects, I often say to workplaces, like, if you're designing the workplace, I think it's great if there's quiet areas. I'd love um, areas that have a bit of buzz to it. So you'd know, like, right, that might suit me in the morning. I like go to that bit in that, that area that's a bit noisier. Almost like, you know, on a train, there's a quiet carriage and then the other carriages are have to be noisier. Like, I think neurodiversity isn't just about saying, like, one type of building. You know, like, I don't mean to be critical, but a lot of supermarkets might do um, quiet hours. I think they need to do lots of different variations on that. <laughs> because um, it's not just quiet hours that people love and actually if they stop moving everything around that would be good for everyone um, but yeah I, I think that the more diversity you could have with a building so I would love in the morning to go and work in an area where everyone's talkative and buzzy but in the afternoon I might need to go on my own so yeah that sort of variation would be great in buildings so if there's any architects that would be great to, <laughs> great to implement. Yeah, just, just on a slightly different note, so a couple of years back, uh, a very senior lawyer, I guess many people on the call will recognize his name, but I'm not going to breathe it, uh, a magic circle lawyer, 
uh, asked me to make make my emails when I emailed him a lot shorter, and he and he told me the reason that is that he's so badly dyslexic that he was surprised he got through law school, and uh, this is a man at the absolute top of his profession, and uh, in, uh, and Malcolm Gladwell in his book David and Goliath has a whole chapter de devoted to David Boyes, the chairman of Boyes Schiller, who, and David is of course one of the top litigators in the U.S., who's also madly dyslexic and. Uh, uh, and, and he'd probably have failed dismally as a, as a corporate lawyer, uh, but, but he, he, his brain had compensated by developing the ability to listen really well and to, uh, he had an auditory perfect memory. So he would be able to say to a witness on, on the cross-examination, but two days ago you said, and, and come up with an absolute word perfect uh, repetition of what the witnesses had said. Um, and then when uh, Mal Malcolm Gladwell gave him a copy of, of David and Goliath, he said, oh, well, thank you very much, but you don't expect me to read it to you. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, we, we've got some fantastic role models in society now who have um, come out as, uh, and celebrated their neurodivergence. Um, many of our entrepreneurs, um, Richard Branson is one of mm. them, is um, neurodivergent. Um, and we have role models at all levels as well. We have uh, Greta Thun Thunberg, um, who's come out as neurodivergent, and we can see how her neurodivergence has helped her get where she is today. Um, well, she wasn't trying to get, get in any particular position of seniority or authority. She just needed to get a message across, and that's something that her neurodiversity has helped. And um, I, think, I think we've covered the first question, which we advised our uh, participants today that we were going to talk about, and that's how neurodiversity can assist with creativity and decision making and leadership in law firms. Um, and to a certain extent, we've, we've moved on to the next question, which was um, how to, um, how can firms encourage awareness of neurodiversity and a culture um, of neurodiversity? But do you have anything further that you'd like to add to either of those um, Key questions that we said we were going to cover? I would probably just add, you know, in terms of encouraging a culture of neurodiversity, I feel really strongly about advocacy and it's why I decided to sort of break cover on it because I, you know, I figured that if I can't do it and go out and tell people that I've got ADHD and not not have the stigma layered on me and have a negative reaction, then no, you know, because I feel like I've, I've, I've had some pretty decent successes, then what was that going to say for my kids who are just starting out? So, you know, I think it does need to be led from the top. There aren't, I mean, still, I've not seen very many seniors in, in the legal profession who have been willing to say, to come out. And, you know, Rob, you, you obviously know someone who's very severely dyslexic and is keeping it a secret. And it's a very personal choice, but think of the difference that that would make for someone like that who's so amazing at his job to come out, to, to come out, but to, to, say, to say to everyone's firm and the rest of the profession, I've got dyslexia that changes everyone's view of what dyslexia is. And then, because it's a tall ask to, to, to ask junior people, you know, we're saying, oh, we need people to be honest about their, their strengths and weaknesses. If we at the top level can't be, we have to start first um, because they need to see, people in my firm needed to see that I had the managing partner and all my other partners and all my other colleagues standing behind me and going, that's fine, we're not worried. You, you know, we still think you're good at your job. And as a result of that, more people from inside my firm who were keeping their neurodiversity secret came to me and said, actually, I've got, I've, I've got this. <clears throat> so the advocacy is a really important part. And I, 
you know, I do think we need more senior people in the legal profession to, to come out if they know they've got it. I think a lot of them don't. I think it's about sending signs and signals. And I've absolutely stolen that phrase from the fantastic Rachel at Global Butterflies, if some of you I've met her. It's about sending the signs and signals. And some of them are about leaders coming forward and saying, yes, I'm a, I've got ADHD. I've done training in law firms in London where people stood up afterwards and one of the partners said, yes, he's got, he's got ADHD. Um, and I've seen this happen with mental health about 10 years ago. <clears throat> Maybe 15 years ago, people say, oh, just pull yourself together, get, get on with it. But then I saw a lot more senior leaders coming forward and saying they'd been off for, for stress or anxiety. And I feel that mental health is a lot more accepted now. <clears throat> and I want to see the same thing happen with neurodiversity in workplaces around culture. I think a lot of the difficulties some neurodiverse staff have are often, and I always get this word wrong, but infantilized. I think I said it right today. Like, and there can be little things like filling in forms and, you know, remembering sequences, remembering names, little things that we think, oh, as an adult, you should be able to do that. But I think they are at the heart of some of the difficulties around neurodiversity. But often people just think, oh, you should be able to do that. You're an adult. They'll be like, well, I went on some amazing training. I love neurodiversity, but you need to fill in this form. <laughs> and it's like, I can't fill in that form. I have a massive difficulty with that. So I think it's it's these little things being more accepted. But um, yeah, I think definitely signs and signals um, from the top make a big difference. And just as a context for the signs and signals, I mean, strategy itself has gone through an evolution since it was designed and first invented back in the 1960s when it was a deeply secret thing and the chief, chief executive kept it locked in the drawer through the 80s and 90s when it became a thing that companies did, you know, manage, management by walking around, all that kind of thing. And the most up-to-date best practice today is that strategy needs to be as open and transparent and inclusive as possible. And uh, Richard Whittington at the Said Business School at Oxford wrote a book on this two years ago called Open, Opening Strategy. And uh, that, that, in, that includes uh, harnessing the, the, the entire workforce, the divergence of the, 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 of the, the um, cognitive divergence of the entire workforce in order to have conversations about where the firm should go and then drawing on all those conversations to be able to craft the strategy. So... What I'm hearing very much so is that creativity is going to give businesses an edge where you can think about doing things differently, whether that's driven because you have neurodiverse and, uh, sorry, neurodivergent people within your organization and they need you to think differently. Don't always, you don't always have to fill in this form in order to get to the next level. Um, there are different ways of doing it. It can give you the creative edge. And what I've also heard is that um, and I can't remember who said this, but uh, people who might consider themselves neurotypical may have traits which are neurodivergent as well. I mean, I, I know myself quite often, my working memory, um, if somebody says to me, right, you have to go left, right, left, and then straight on, I, I've only got as far as left, and then straight on and over the roundabout uh, um, may be quite difficult. And so putting in places creative um, strategies to assist people just with the day-to-day -day, um, nonsense can really help everybody and not just um, the neurodiverse section of your workforce. Um, my next question was uh, relating to, <laughs> and this was the third question that we'd put on the um, invitation. And, and I, I think I know what the answer to this is going to be, but um, the big debate is neurodiversity versus homogeneity from a, a leadership perspective. Um, are we satisfied that diversity is actually better than homogeneity, particularly in times of crisis that um, we've seen 
over the last uh, 18 months? What do we think? Well, the literature comes down absolutely on the side of, of diversity. There's, there's no doubt about that. I, I haven't seen a single paper that, said hom that says homogenous is good in decision making. Uh, yeah, basically, I would second that. I mean, it's got to be diversity all the way. I've, I think I've already said that I think six, you know, a good, good leadership team for any business, not just law, has to be made up of people of all sorts of brains, um, you know, whether they're neuro, neuro, whether formally neurodiverse or not, um, because a single person can't cover and be good at everything. Mm. Um, I sometimes use an example around, imagine if you worked in an architect and there was a building design emergency and you had to design a building by the end of the week and someone with ADHD designed the building, but then um, they showed that design that they'd done very quickly to someone who's a more reflective thinker, maybe someone who's autistic, dyslexic, and someone that was dyslexic or autistic says, did you notice you didn't put any doors in this building? You know, but we need the people to be so decisive that they've, they've designed the building in the building emergency <laughs> that needs to happen. But that's why we need the reflective thinkers as well. Um, and like Caroline was saying earlier, leadership, yeah, we need people that take risks um, and stuff like that. But then we need also the reflective people around to say, I've looked at this in more detail. And, and that's, that's what it, that's what neurodiversity is for me. It's not about saying just employ autistic people. It's about understanding that we need all these different thinkers in the workplace. Yeah. So from a, from a law firm um, or professional service firm perspective, um, the key things that they can do to assist in raising awareness, um, one would be presumably firstly making a statement that they are supportive in a, of neurodiversity. And I wonder how many professional service firms actually specify that uh, specifically in their diversity and equality policies um, or anywhere on their website or anywhere that's visible to um, encourage people to learn more about neurodiversity. Um, the second point is therefore, once you say you're neurodiverse um, supportive, um, how you actually put that into practice. And uh, a recent study that I was looking at suggested that 86% of managers don't have, uh, are not confident that they have a general understanding of what neurodiversity means. And, what, and given that 15% on average of their workforce might be neurodiverse, it's quite important, one would think, for managers to be trained in this area to have some understanding and know how to um, bring out the best in people. Is that something that, um, what would you say, Daniel, in terms of training? What would be the best training um, techniques for managers? What, what can firms do? I would say absolutely I set up a training organisation five years ago because I believe that awareness is this half of this sort of um, starting that conversation. So absolutely. So, yeah, we, we do training with managers and we do training in like 90 minute formats, hour formats, because I found actually law firms and professional services, you can't take people away for half days and days. So you want to get that information really concisely uh, in sort of like bite-sized sessions. So yeah, definitely training, I think is, is so, so key. I think it's just for managers to understand those little things like, well, why does someone need two screens? And it might be, they've got difficulty with working memory and moving information between the two sides. And I think it's just enlightening managers that, that it's there. I think people don't know what it means. If someone says to you, oh, I'm dyslexic, I think a lot of managers just think, oh, well, that means you struggle with reading and writing. I think they don't know there's so much more to it. So, yeah, obviously me, a big advocate of, of training training and awareness. I think it's key. Well, I think also, as well as training, we need to, I think we need to make it easier for people with neurodiversity to even get into the workplace. Mm. Um, not, not, you know, training to help them, you know, and to help managers, uh, you know, respond in the right ways. 
essential, but I do still think there are barriers to people getting into the workplace. It, I think it's fairly widely accepted that if you're neurodiverse, you're not going to be, you, you're not going to respond well to psychometric tests. And Emma, when we first met, I told you the story about, you know, I actually basically didn't get accepted onto the traineeship programme of the firm that subsequently I spent 15 years at and put me up through into partnership, you know, and I was, I was, I was put into their partnership development programme, like they asked me to be a partner. <laughs> so, but they didn't, they didn't think at the time when I applied for traineeship that I was a worthy trainee because I didn't pass the psychometric test. But I didn't know I had ADHD then. If I did, you know, maybe I could have disclosed it and had a different test. I think back in the day, probably not. I think you can do that now. But it's also other things like, you know, unseen sort of on the spot exam style questions. That's probably going to really stress someone with ASD. Um, because they don't, you know, they, they like certainty, they like to know what's going on. So if you just flip, you know, for an exam style interview question, that, that, that's not going to allow them to shine. Um, so I do think we need more bespoke recruitment processes, but also performance management, you know, like these scorecards that you get, um, you know, assessing different quadrants. So, you know, will someone be really, really good? At sitting at their desk churning and making fees all day and also a rainmaker probably not probably not because i don't you know all renders don't exist you might get someone that's a total rainmaker and they'll go out and they'll win all the clients and they'll be amazing at business development amazing at creating relationships but they you know like people probably get really bored sitting at their desk all day churning the same work but there are other people that you know on the other hand really like that certainty because of the way their brains work um so to try and score everyone on the same performance card is it's not going to give rise to the right results. You're not then going to reward the person who is, you know, really good at sitting at their desk plowing through the work because they lost out on the 25% that was allocated to rainmaking because they're not that good at it and vice versa. I think professional practice firms, leadership boards quite often um, get selected because they have been the best biller, for example. Mm. Um, and that's not necessary. I think Rob's going to have something to say about how leaders within professional practice firms should be chosen um, or should be should be placed where they where they are well i'd like to make a slightly different point if i may and that's something that i think is extremely important for managers to bear in mind and do and that is when you're having a discussion uh, with a group about some complex situation and you're going to need to come up with some ideas and then decide which idea to implement it's it's crucial to separate the creativity phase from the decision making phase because during the creativity phase you'll get uh, especially people with divergent thinking and, and and people who have adhd are far better at divergent thinking than uh, neurotypical people they, they will come up with uh, dozens of ideas and and including some ideas like buildings without doors and and what often happens is that somebody who's got more convergent thinking in the room will say hold on a second i'll give you three reasons why that doesn't work and one two three boom 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 and that person never opens their mouth again yeah. So it, it's important to, to say we're not going to make decisions, even if we get a really great decision pot potentially to make right now, we're not going to do it. We're going to leave it for later and we're going to carry on with the, 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 the process of exploring and going deeper and deeper and then we'll make decisions. And then you can put your, and, and, and this is particularly important in law firms, I think, because lawyers, many lawyers ha are, are deeply uh, skilled in critical analytical thinking, which is the antithesis of, of creativity. It's finding out what can go wrong rather than what are the possibilities. 
and, and, and there's a need for that. It's, you, you need that critical analytical thinking when you're deciding which solution to pick and where to invest, but not when you are still spitballing and filling up flip charts. Experts on worst case scenario thinkers. That's, <laughs> you've just <laughs> described myself, Rob. Um, we are three minutes from ending the session. So um, maybe in five words or less, <laughs> you can have more. Um, do you have any key takeaways, um, Daniel, for the, uh, on what we've been discussing today? I can't do five words, but I think to have a neuroinclusive workplace, you need to look at your policies and procedures, your recruitment processes, managers need training, what support exists for employees. And I think so crucially, we haven't mentioned it, we haven't had time, but colleagues need this training as well, this awareness. If managers have it and recruitment teams have it, but then the autistic person spends the day with a team that doesn't understand them, they get ostracized, bullied and harassed. So I think colleague awareness is very key as well. That's fantastic, thank you. Um, Caroline, a key takeaway. I think the key takeaway that I, you know, that I would really would like people to understand is that I do, I do think neurodiversity is an asset most of the time. I don't want to belittle the challenges that, pe that neurodiverse people often have. And, and depending on the scale, you know, people can have these um, types of neurodiversity more severely than others. Um, but I think it is, um, it, it's definitely can provide a competitive edge to a business. There's an un untapped pool there of innovators and high performers. Why would you not want to go and tap that? It's good enough for GCHQ and Microsoft. So I think the legal profession needs to start embracing it. Thank you. And Rob? Yeah, just building on that. Uh, it's so difficult to find sources of sustainable competitive advantage in today's hyper-competitive world. And, and, and especially with, with professions where all the firms kind of look the same to clients. And this really is uh, being able to, to harness neurodiversity uh, is potentially a way of, of, of finding that uh, competitive advantage, but key to it, to the, even if you find it, you need to be organized in a way to be able to exploit it. I explained this in the paper with the link in the chat. Um, so it, it is a source of, of potentially a source of sustainable competitive advantage, that holy grail of strategy. Um, I'd like to thank all of you. You've been fantastic panelists today. And um, I hope that we have started a conversation and if people want to continue the conversation, please do contact us. Um, just a reminder to our fantastic audience today, if, um, if you're not a member of the PPA, please do follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. And our next session is on 7th of July. I remembered to say it, um, but thank you very much. If anybody has any questions after the session, please do um, not hesitate to contact us. Thank you. <laughs>